0: Of course, no time in history has ever been perfect. You can agree with that. Yes. But if you suffer from anxiety and are looking for help, the current time compared to the past isn't that bad, especially if you're a woman. Uh, Why? Because men are historically the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Just the worst. And I'm not talking out of school. Everyone kind of knows this, except for jerks that have tiki torches. They're the worst. They're the worst. And I wanted to bring up something that I think – Some people will know a certain about. I did a little bit of more research and learned about it. What do you know about the idea of female hysteria,
1: Pete? I I don't know a whole lot, although I did go to a play once that was about the first vibrator. Does that count? Yes, it is very much involved. And until now, I didn't know if we could say the word vibrator. Good to
0: know. Oh, check. Check that off the list. We'll get to that later. Yes, it was an actual medical diagnosis for hundreds of years. Would you like to know the symptoms? sure they include faintness nervousness sexual desire lack of sexual desire insomnia heaviness in the abdomen shortness of breath irritability loss of appetite for food or quote
1: a tendency to cause trouble and it was all for females <laughs> it sounds like it was a diagnosis for not having a vibrator right it was it was pretty much a it was a delivery device for misogyny
0: <laughs> yay <laughs> Uh, now, yes, we will get to the V word that you keep saying over and over again. Uh, but what I didn't know, I Do you, just does always, it make you uncomfortable, Tom? Is there a it does not? I'm just getting used to, to it. Anxiety. I had, I had written around it because I didn't know. I don't know. <laughs> We're still figuring this podcast. I know it's episode eight, but this is just uncharted territory. Let me just put it online. Vibrator feels good. Feels right. good. <laughs> I always pictured. The idea of female hysteria and, oh, the vapors and the fainting couch to be connected to Victorian times, a time of Uh really great repression. What I learned is the idea of female hysteria dates back to 1900 B.C. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Misogyny (laughs) for the win. Back in ancient Egypt, the first descriptions of hysteria Uh. within the female body were found recorded on the Kaihun Papyri, which is a collection of ancient Egyptian texts. Ah, uh, discussing a bunch of stuff, but a part of it was mathematical and also medical <laughs> topics. Uh, and then later in Plato, we all know Plato, right? Legendary smart guy. In his dialogue oh, yeah. Timaeus, he compared <laughs> a woman's uterus to a living creature that wanders throughout a woman's body, <laughs> just out on a stroll, blocking passages, <laughs> obstructing breathing, and causing disease. And this concept of a pathological wandering womb was later viewed as potentially the source of the term hysteria itself, because the Greek cognate of uterus is hystera. So it obviously comes from way back. We wanted to make sure that women were guilty Uh, of a lot of stuff. This idea of the uterus causing all the problems, of course, led much later and very horribly to women uh, having their uteruses removed. Thus the term hysterectomy.
1: Removing. The hysteria.
0: Exactly. Removing the hysteria. Oh. Having the your uterus worst, Tom. having your uterus removed in current days is an actual procedure, but we don't do it because someone it has a tendency to cause trouble. We do it for actual medical concerns. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> now there's good news we were learning so much stuff throughout history that the diagnose changed because up in the seventeenth century, luckily it was blamed on demons.
1: <laughs>
0: and demonic <laughs> possession. That
1: makes much more sense. Right? Yeah. So much better. Yeah.
0: And then in the 18th century, the supposed cause of hysteria moved from the uterus to the brain. So that's good. So at least it's getting around the idea of having a mental problem. But, of course, they were categorized as being mentally ill. And that led some women yeah. being forced to enter insane asylums, or as they like to call them then, sanatoriums, which sounds
1: even more terrifying for some reason. Really terrifying, yeah.
0: And it goes on from there. It goes on from there. Actually, George Beard, who we talked about before, he came up with the term Americanitis. He was the father yeah. of American psychology, and he came up with a list of 75 different diagnoses that could be attributed to Oh, was misstary. one of them
1: a witch? Oh, I'm sure.
0: It was, yeah, it was <laughs> periodic witchness. It's female hysteria. She
1: must be a witch. <laughs> yes. It and was, if she floats, she's a duck. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> Anytime that you were going against what was either perceived as normal or you were turning down your husband's advances or anything, It could all be put under the fact that clearly you were hysteric. And then, yes, before the uh, mental part came into the picture using the V word, yes, that actually it was the diagnosis of hysteria that here's some good news came up with the invention of the vibrator because uh, doctors decided that women needed a certain kind of release in order to release the hysteria into the. I don't know, universe. I don't know where the hysteria went. But so there was all sorts of fun doctor visits as far as that's concerned. Uh, This is all gross and disgusting. And I hate history. Yeah. It does make me feel better about the time we're in. And on the other side of it, the good thing is, lucky for us, the male sex organs have never once caused a problem in history. So (laughs) keep it up, men, Literally and figuratively. (laughs) Welcome to What's That Smell? A sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Tommy Metz III. And I'm Pete Wright. And every week we each drag out one of our deepest, darkest anxieties
1: into the light to share it, learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Reach out, send us your story of anxiety to somethingstinky at rashpixel.fm. Again, somethingstinky at rashpixel.fm. And with that, Tommy, I'd like to go first. Do you wonder after, I mean, this is episode eight, Tommy, we've been... Talking wow. about our anxieties now for a long time. Do you start to wonder, or have you ever wondered, why you don't have anxiety about some things? <laughs> I don't know. It almost seems like a jinx. <laughs> I don't believe in jinxes personally, <laughs> but I don't. I don't go
0: searching for things. Why do you ask?
1: Well, I, I have. I, I have a story, and it's very brief. That doesn't relate really at all to the story to the anxiety that I want to talk about today. But I feel like I have to get it off my chest because I should, by all rights, have an anxiety about this thing. I was. Uh, I, I was. Riding a horse. I was a young, a young lad on a horse. You know, I as I have told you before, I come from a long line of horse people. Yeah, and uh, we were on the, on the ranch in Oklahoma. <laughs> I am, and I was with my my father was on another horse, and his uncle was on another horse, and we were out riding the ranch. And as we're we're bringing the horses back into the barn, uh, I was probably I want to say twelve. Okay, uh, and another horse that was wandering around the pen. Uh, comes up behind my horse and mounts it. Oh, no.
0: While well, you're me still on, on it.
1: it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there I am, plastered between these horses and the horse above me. Hey, uh, just t- t- talk a little slower. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> it's not weird, right? Just, uh, you know, <laughs> paint, paint a picture, put on some music. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> the horse above me is going to town and I have oh. legs uh on like his legs are kind of on my shoulders and kind of down struggling to get down on the shoulders of the horse that I'm on I am sandwiched between his legs are these up on horses. your shoulders yes oh well yeah gosh. and and so and and you have to see like my Dad and his uncle are in hysterics. Like, they know there is something that's really traumatic going on right in front of them. But they can't help themselves. Uh, but they they can't help themselves because they know immediately that that's going to become a bucket list story that they will tell forever <laughs> and ever and ever. Yeah. They're... Now, I, to this day, love horses. I rode for years after that. I, I adore horses. They are giant with in such power and with a swift kick they could kill me. Yeah. And yet I call them friend. Why don't I have an anxiety about these giant beasts? Why didn't that make some sort of an imprint? Yes. And yet, this one little, tiny, totally normal thing has such an immediate physiological effect on me. Mm. In fact, one in ten people share my plight here. One in ten people gets that racing heart, hot flash, dizziness, nausea when they have to face it. One in ten people have to confront the question, Tom. They have to ask themselves if it's actually worth it to go to the doctor if they have to face a needle. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I hate needles
0: so hard. I hate them hard. Did a needle ever try to mount you? (laughs) No, because then you'd be fine. Right. Then, you'd,
1: then you'd call that needle friend. <laughs> no, uh, it, it's, the thing is, though, this is like more than any of the other things that we've talked about. Uh, this this is one that I had to back pocket because I had to work up to it. Oh, really? Yeah, I, it's, it's not just that I hate them. It's that when I see them and when they're targeted at, at me, <laughs> I straight up pass out.
0: Oh, you're one of those. I am. Right. Do you have to see the blood or you just see the needle? I know that there's levels of when people pass out when that happens.
1: I if I go silent, it's because I have passed out while talking about it. Oh, okay. I so can even feel my heart racing. It, on the ride no, it, to the doctor's is, office. Okay. Yeah. No. It's if if I know it's coming, I I you know I get the hot flash and and my pulse quickens and mm. and uh, it's it's pretty terrifying. And you know I it started as a kid. Like I, I think it ha- it started when I I went into you know what was ultimately supposed to be a very normal sort of surgical procedure, but back then it was overnight. I don't know if they still do that anymore. I had to get my tonsils out mm. and so I'd go to the hospital and check in and they put me under and they went in and did the tonsils and then I had to stay at the hospital well in trying to get a, a drip right trying to get the, the anesthesia in yep they kept missing the veins and yeah! so they had to stab the back of my you well, were there on the everyone's back. first day <laughs> <sighs> it feels like it it yeah it... <laughs> I they stabbed the back cuz you know they put it in the back of your hand for some of these. I don't know yeah. what makes them choose where they're going to do it, who knows. But they they went in the back of my hand on the on my right hand and they tried that twice they kept missing. They went in the back of my hand on my left hand. Oh, no, nope, they kept missing. This is all in the span of about 5 minutes. They're like jamming the back of mm. my hands mm. with mm. these needles to try and get a drip. They finally got it working, but I feel like that was the start of it. Sure. Um And I don't think I ever quite recovered. Uh, And, you know, then I I would start sliding. You'd have to go in for a blood draw, you know, for the doctor. I would just Uh slide out of the chair, just straight to the floor. I'd slide out of the chair. Eventually, they start laying me down, you know, before they do that, before they approach me with a needle. Were you sliding because you passed out or sliding as some
0: bizarre way to escape?
1: They'll no. never see this coming <laughs> Boy, <laughs> that would have been super smart <laughs> yeah. no just because I would I would lose it I'd pass out oh now I don't have some people suffer from it it's called a, a vasovagal syncope. Ooh. and uh, the passing out part, and I—I uh, I don't have what's called a convulsive uh, vasovagal syncope, and convulsive can be either epileptic or non-epileptic, and this is obviously this is a um, this is just related to the needle phobia uh, that that happens. And so I, uh, oh God, man, you you have you have life insurance? Do you have life insurance, Tom? I do. I'd like to tell you about a plan. Okay, look, they they send somebody to your house. At least for ours, they send somebody to our house, like a roving blood draw, a roving phlebotomist, <laughs> to come to you, to come to your house to take blood for this for your life insurance physical. At least they did for us; It was very convenient. It was great, uh, except for I'm sitting at my kitchen table, and she tries to draw blood, and she approaches me with the needle, and I go down, mm. I I pass out, and in that process, I will never forget, I had. A dream or, or like a a, the, a life flashed before my eyes, but it wasn't my own. It was the administrative assistant's life who worked at the company that I worked for at the time. And I happened to have been holding or looking at a Christmas card that she'd sent us with a, a, a kind of collage of photos. And so I was suddenly in her life living those memories as I was passing out while they were trying to get blood what how ridiculous like that that is such a clear memory for me what is that yeah why I don't know what that means it's just weird right that's a weird thing what if that's what death was like (laughs) (laughs) at the very end you're like I wonder what my mailman is seeing that sucks (laughs) I had like some sort of a montage with music or something right. (laughs) But go well, ahead. Yeah. What was so funny about that whole experience is that in fact, uh afterwards she she did get the blood, but she told me she said, Don't worry, I had to get to use the infant needle. Aww. The infant needle. I'm a grown ass <laughs> man, Tom. <laughs> the infant needle. That's adorable. Oh, no, I want an infant needle. You can't have one. You don't get <laughs> the infant needle. Look, this actually is, is kind of serious. I didn't go to the dentist for 18 years. But wait, how often are they? What? Wait, first, I'm sorry, I was jumping for 18 years. Do you still have teeth? Yeah, right. That's actually why I went, uh, because I was having some serious tooth pain. And that is what they call end-stage needle phobia. Can you piece that puzzle together? It's when you have a treatable condition that has become very serious, or in in many cases, life-threatening. That you have avoided going to the doctor because of needle phobia for so long that your health is to a point where we could we could help you if you would just do this uh, and and you're forced to get to, to move through the needle phobia. It's called end stage needle phobia. And for me, I, I was getting to the point where I, I was having some serious dental pain. Can I ask two follow up questions? You may. Is now a good time? It is. Number one about the dentist. You were afraid of the
0: dentist. Does a drill give you the same kind of feeling as a needle? Nope. No, it's a, just a needle. So
1: you were afraid that they would have it's to the put you under or give you Novocaine or something like that, which is all neat over there. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. This is a totally side story, but I think my childhood dentist oh. was kind of a charlatan.
0: Really? The audience can't hear us, right? Because we're talking no, like no. this. No one can hear
1: us? Okay. Good. No, no one yeah. can hear us. He gave me a filling every time I went in, every single time. My mouth is full of... Metal, really, and uh, so I. that's part of so he just bought. He bought too many fillings. Yes, <laughs> he needed <laughs> he to, to get use rid those. of those. Uh, These fillings are going bad. I, th- I think I had so many shots that I associated. Once I developed this sort of needle oh, phobia thing, sure, I and started passing out. I I reassociated needles with the dentist. I was like, no, thank you. I don't like those anywhere, let alone in my mouth. That makes sense. And so I had to get over that part, but not without a long conversation with my dentist about this. You check his pockets (laughs) to see if they're filled with fillings? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Look, doc, I get the racket. I've been (laughs) I've been been around. No. So anyway, that's my dentist thing. What's your other question? Well, I wanted to go and let me
0: know if this gets too creepy. But are you able to nail down what you are afraid of? Is it the pain is there anything involved with something being injected into,
1: or that's taken a great, out of your that's, body? A great it just... that's a great question. That's a great question. It is less severe for me with injections and more severe draws. Hmm. But I don't have necessarily like when I see blood or when I scrape myself and I'm bleeding or when I cut myself. Like I'm able to move through that. Pretty quickly. So it's not just blood. Okay. Right. Interesting. It is that combination of somebody reaching into my skin and taking out something that does not belong to them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you're just meek. as a
1: as a thing, I can't watch movies with needles. I have to hide my eyes from needles in movies. That is a frustrating experience. The question for me is why do people pass out with this needle phobia because that is unique Mm -hmm. to this phobia it is unique above and beyond i'd love to say all other phobias but most other phobias and other types of fear passing out is not necessarily associated with it because fear when you're afraid of something it makes your heart beat faster and your blood pressure rises fainting is caused by a drop in blood pressure reducing blood flow to the brain
0: oh it's not just a everything gets up to such a fever pitch that the That the brain says, you need to take a break and shut you down? No,
1: no. And that's what's so interesting about it. Interesting. That those two things should not... It's like high jump, low ceiling. You should not do these things. They shouldn't exist in the same space. Right. Professor Andrew Page, thank goodness he comes up from University of Western Australia, and he's been studying just this very stuff. He says, if you look at what happens when you're losing a lot of blood, like if you get an injury, you get a reduction in blood flow coming back to the heart. So the heart says... I'm going to stop pumping hard because I don't want to push all the remaining blood out of the body because it's not trapped. Yes. So one explanation that he says is pretty sound is that this is a your body's natural mechanism to reduce blood flow when you are injured, right? That you that your body just knows blood is leaving, so I'm going to reduce blood pressure and wow. People who suffer from the 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 fainting part of it their blood pressure can't uh, respond quickly enough to keep them lucid. Okay, but so then are you, by that same definition, if you you're telling
0: your brain that blood is leaving because the the stuff that's taken out in a in a like if you're having blood drawn isn't very yeah, much, right? So I'd be surprised if your brain could immediately go, "Oops, I sense a little bit of a drop. Let's shut everything down." Versus, is it you telling your
1: brain, heart? connection that this is yeah not- it has to be somewhat psychosomatic right i just don't know i mean the wonders of right. the body I, I that we don't know right but, but that's fascinating that you're having that kind of yeah. a
0: talk and then you have such a physiological physiological response exactly. i mean i guess we do that all the yeah. time
1: but wow that's really and, interesting. and it gets to this it gets more complicated with the secondary fear that fainting can also create this secondary fear where you begin to fear you'll faint As much as you fear the needle itself. And that makes it even more uh, difficult to overcome. So um, I I don't like it one bit. I don't (laughs) like thinking about it. it. Here's the thing. Shake it off. So treatment uh, is sort of lame and terrifying and worse than almost passing out. I would rather pass out than be treated. And but I know that unlike the water conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago, right? I, I'm okay not being exposed to rivers and lakes. I really am fine on land. Yeah. This case I had to I, I had to and continue to have to fix the way that I experience needles because my health is at stake. So there are three uh, common treatment. Options
0: in order to get over the anxiety.
1: Well, yeah. The first one is really to try to get over the anxiety of it. And it's very hard to do uh, because frankly, people who are needle phobics don't go to the doctor very much, right? Right. So the medical community has not a great idea of how to even handle this, right? So it's it's been very difficult to sort of see improvement, even though it does impact a lot of people. A relatively large percentage of the population struggles with this. The first is what they call graded exposure. Right. So exposing on a grade, the slow and steady introduction of needles. This connects a little bit to our VR yep, thing. It does. It does. Or the quit center. Okay, right. Yeah. Ahead. So you you start yeah. with this slow, slow sort of exposure. It starts with maybe it's pictures of needles that you're looking at. You have to look at them and stare at them and run your fingers over them. Then you are introduced to needles. You are introduced to, to the real needle and you have to touch it and hold it in your hand. You have to look at it. You have to see other people being touched by them. Right. So uh, yep. you you watch other people as you have needles. to go on a date with a needle <laughs> <laughs> You buy it dinner first, uh, yep, <laughs> and you have to, and then you have to watch other people being injected. The ultimate goal. Oof. Once you get through all those steps is that you are able to be injected themselves. And I read this story about this woman who's been through this treatment and she went from uh, being uh, broke and destitute because she was terrified of needles going to the doctor. Her health was failing. And now she is a nurse assistant in a dentist's office and has to prep needles every day. And she said, it, if without this treatment, I wouldn't have a job, I, let alone this job. But the fact that exposure therapy has gotten me to this job is, is, wow. is pretty delightful. So it's a, it, it was an interesting story. The next level of treatment is for those who who have the passing out problem um, the the mm-hmm. syncope is called applied tension so if you 're fainting, you tense the body 's large muscles and and push blood pressure up to resist blacking out is that like your, your legs yeah. in your arm? yeah so you're doing flex, it right now, your flex stomach? Flex, okay. flex flex and then hopefully you do that right before they give you the the injection and uh, that'll that'll keep you from passing out because the syncope is is a dangerous thing it's a really dangerous thing we have a needle in your arm and you risk falling and hitting your head like it, it, it can be a very serious condition and so yeah. you, you want to be prepared for that um, and the third recommendation is find another doctor right if, if, if <laughs> phobics go to the doctor with this lower frequency challenge if you go to a doctor that says well you're just gonna have to get over that which is a common refrain um, yeah. then you, you need to go to a uh, find somebody in a medical community that actually um, uh, has that, that with can that empathize yeah with that kind of and, 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 huh. and has been trained and, and in fact training has apparently gotten much much better that there are training communities and nursing communities that that um, are, are teaching how to do this. Uh, with the needle phobic in mind.
0: Do you have uh, out where you are? It's There's a lot of them out here, apparently. A dentist that just puts you to sleep. <laughs> but that's There's there's advertisements all over, or maybe it's just all by my apartment, but that the whole idea is that if you have a dental phobia, you go in, and no matter what it is, they're just taking a look, they're giving you a cleaning, you're out. Yeah. They put you out. Not with a the needle, they put something gas, over your nose. yeah, and they stuff. put the
1: gas on. Yeah. Gas,
0: yeah, and they gas you out, and then you wake up and... I don't know which I'm more scared about, <laughs> the idea of walking into a room and someone jumping at me with needles yeah. or just saying, hey, you just met me. I take your insurance. <laughs> Goodbye for half an hour.
1: <laughs> I'll take over from here. I, I'm i not sure. <laughs> I I, uh, uh, I have been gassed once at, at the dentist's yeah. office and it was for, um, I don't even remember what the procedure was, but I do remember uh, that I had to, I, I started singing the song. Uh, that the bring out your dead guy sings in Monty Python. I'm so happy, and I started singing that and <laughs> trying to control my own gas levels, and they had to actually restrain me. So, not a great candidate, but I love the uh, I love the idea. Pete, Tom,
0: I am about to tell you a very short but very harrowing tale. Hmm. In the year of our Lord, 2014, a young male was found wandering the streets of the San Fernando Valley on the 4th of July. He seemed to be afraid of the fireworks that were going off. He couldn't say his name, he didn't know where he lived, and no one seemed to be looking for him. Eventually, he was taken in by an agency who guessed that he was about only one years old at the time. The agency did their best to find his family, but no luck. And after he was in the system for a while, they began to try and find him a new family. He was taken in as a foster, (laughs) with the person only agreeing to keep him for about four months maximum, or less if he was able to find a forever home. Less than two months later, he was adopted by that same person, who decided his was the forever home that was needed. And the best part is that that young male came with his own crate to sleep in. Of course, uh, as everyone will have guessed by now, that young male that I'm talking about is my dog, Foster. (laughs) Foster.
1: Do you have a phobia of your dog, Foster, or Foster children? And
0: I was the one, wait for it, and I was the one who rescued him. But, you know, sometimes I feel like sometimes he rescued me. (laughs) Okay. If you know me, you know that my pup, Foster, is my sidekick, and he brings me an immense amount of joy. But as Spider-Man once said, with great joy comes great anxiety. I do not read comics. And so, (laughs) this is my anxiety for this week. Am I giving my dog a good enough life? (laughs) Am I accidentally ruining him in some way? This is my anxiety for this week. It is, of course, not debilitating. Foster gives me some of the most joy that I've had in my life. But with that, as I said, there's got to be anxiety that comes with that. Let me talk about it a little bit. I look into his eyes, and it's some, it's some of the basics. It gives me anxiety that I can't fully understand him and give him whatever he wants. Or sometimes have to force him to do things he doesn't want, and I can't explain to him why I can't. Uh, a lot Sometimes he seems like he's really bored. Sometimes he just sort of stares at me weirdly with what my friend Irina calls murder eyes, which is not it's not like he's angry, but it's just this cold, weird stare where he's just sort of staring. And I can picture him thinking about all the knives in the house. Um, There's a very good chance that I shouldn't have anxiety for this. And there are some mitigating factors that help with this. Mitigating factor number one, he usually seems pretty happy. He gets plenty of walks. He has dog friends. He has plenty of toys. And I don't work f- full normal hours in an office. So I'm around him a lot more than maybe other dog owners can be around their dogs. Uh-huh, and that's good. Uh-huh. Mitigating number two, there's a good chance I'm worrying too much and giving him too much credit because, for as smart as he can be, he's also often an idiot. <laughs> uh, an example that I have is and I call these tricks. One of his favorite tricks is uh, many times he has chased, he's, we've been out walking, and he's seen the shadow of a bird flying over him on the sidewalk, and he chases the shadow along the ground, which he cannot catch because it's a shadow, and he runs straight into a garbage can. And then he sort of falls over and looks at me like, why have you let this happen?
1: <laughs> this is this is on you. <laughs> this is on
0: you. Uh, another example, and this happens, uh, it doesn't happen as much since when he was a puppy, but when he, and I apologize for the language, when he... Uh, scrunches over to use the restroom, uh, he also pees in his own face <laughs> <laughs> because he's scrunched over in that kind of, uh, you know, a squatty potty form. And he lets go of the first part and it goes in his face. And again, he looks at me like, you know, this is not, this is not <laughs> how this says, is supposed
1: to be. I learned this from watching you, dad. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> but with all of that evidence, uh, there are some things that are going on in that his separation anxiety is getting worse. Uh, A lot of times, sometimes in the mornings, uh, he shakes and doesn't eat if he thinks I might be leaving. Uh, Then he just sort of follows me around or follows me with his eyes until he is somehow convinced, no, I'm staying for at least the morning. Uh, For a while after I would leave, he would sleep on the big bed. That's my bed while I was gone, which filled me with glee. But right now he is waiting. I sneak up to the front door and I open it real quick and he's waiting right there on the hardwood floor i have brought his bed over he doesn't use it he's just waiting by the door and i hate that stuff because that makes it seem like he's not living his full life (laughs) and i have to assume it's something that i'm doing some he's picking up on some social social cues or i'm messing something up and i worry about that kind of stuff i worry am i accidentally ruining my dog
1: somehow Why, why why do you have to assume that Like you said, I have to assume that I'm doing something. Why do you have to assume that?
0: One of the reasons is because as I use the word social cues, he is very good at picking up on those that I learned early on at one point that if I put on this one T-shirt and this certain pair of shorts in the morning, he will leap about in glee and then run over and start eating his food. It was then I realized over the past two days because I was just staying at home, I'd worn the same T-shirt and pair of shorts. So he was able to equate that with my dad staying home. For someone that's peeing in his own face, (laughs) he
1: picked that up after like two days. He's probably smarter than that. It's probably what he's actually doing is coming into the bedroom in the morning and he's uh, he's putting he's like licking you in just the right way so that you put on that shirt and shorts and he's jumping about because what he's really saying is I'm still in control. I have him. I still did this. He is he's his mind is mine. (laughs) What an idiot! When I he'll be peeing in his own face in no time.
0: When I am, when I am leaving, sometimes, and he knows, okay, he's leaving. He does try to convince me. He like runs over the door, and like I've got like a briefcase, my version of a briefcase, in my hand, and he's like, "Yep, just us going out, like we both do to work." And I'm like, "Nope, you gotta go." And he's like, hey, "I don't think you're wrong." And I'll run over to where's Leisha, and is like, "You forgot something. Forgot something." So he does definitely think that he's in control at times. Until I put him in his crate. But the real but, question
1: is what this does to you, because. You know, you want a relationship with your dog. You don't want a, you know, relationship with your dog. Like, this is changing. This is, if it's something that causes you uh, anxiety, then, right. I mean, it's it's something you need to figure out. Right. I mean,
0: and, and again, the joy way outweighs the anxiety. So it's not like I'm rocking back and forth about my dog. But that being said, and I actually wanted to ask you, because Pete, you have actual children. I do. How do you handle it? Well, do you, <laughs> fa, for, I would think that fatherhood, especially in early, how old are your kids? If you're fire, 11
1: and 15.
0: 11 and 15. So up to 11, that's based on nothing. Did you ever feel anxiety of what am I, I mean, you are their portal to the world. Did you ever have any worry of what am I doing? Am I messing up? I mean, I would think that for me, that would be. Really serious because I'm feeling it about a dog. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I absolutely did, and uh, still do because now, you know, now that they're older, uh, I'm I'm sort of done. Like my job with as their teenagers is to you know pretty much keep them fed until they can pay for their own food, right? Keep them healthy right. and alive until they move out. Yeah. But I'm not changing the way they think at this point. That's coming from so many other sources. And right. so, if they do something I don't like, it means I've really failed. So you do uh, take that, okay. and it's too way way too late. And it's too late.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. What about before they were, when they were in the form more the formative
1: years? Did you ever was that
0: ever on your mind?
1: Part of it, it, it just comes as as a source of that constant aching trauma that. Um, and And wonder that you 're just everything you do is there 's a right or a wrong, and this was much more apparent with my first child that um you know that there was a chance I could screw up at any given choice at any given fork in the road and what I learned through that experience and with my second child, and I think you 'd find uh this similar to other parents is that there it turns out every fork that feels like a binary decision is actually. Um, uh, a thousand different choices that you could make, and there is mm. no right or wrong there 's just gradients of safety and if you keep uh, if you keep <laughs> that in mind like Fed and healthy and strong and active, uh, all the other stuff uh, will will just sort of smooth out in the end, just through you know being in your experience. And and so I I it's funny that you you equate it to the children. I I have to also equate it to my dog, like my experience with my dog. Maybe I'm less concerned about that, about the same sorts of anxieties that you're talking about, because of my experience with my kids. That's what I would think
0: is because there's something so much. Not that dogs are not valuable, but I'm not one of those people that's like a, a dog is a child.
1: No, <laughs> yeah, right. No, but 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 yeah, there is um, something real to this idea that you know. I'll tell you, for me, we rescued our dog from a situation that was just, I mean, it was ugly. The dog came up from, from Texas and was in a a foster with way too many dogs. And it was was Mm. scrawny and flea ridden. And, uh, and, and so the dog in our house is loved and taken care of and healthy and clean and strong. And Mm -hmm. all of the other things that, uh, appear to be like, uh, you know, you're not going to leave me. I know you're putting socks on in order to put your shoes on in order to take me places. Right? <laughs> right. I know that that's the presumptive argument. And when that doesn't happen, um, you know, yeah, OK, maybe I get a chicken treat out of the deal as I go sob by the window <laughs> alone. But I, I just am able to kind of let that go because I know when we come ho- home, it's so much ap- appreciably better than the experience that the dog had in the first place. It's a good point. No, that's a good point. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm trying to help, man. I'm trying to help. I talked to our friend Joy, a really good
0: friend who is a professional animal trainer.
1: Oh, that's right. Uh, Because you live in fancy dancy LA and there are all, everybody, every 10th person is an animal trainer. So you have access to these kinds of weird resources. Yes.
0: I don't know if every 10th person is an animal trainer, but definitely (laughs) involved with the arts or the industry. She trains. I guarantee that everyone listening to this has seen one of her dogs, cats, She's trained bears before Mm -hmm. uh, in commercials, movies, television, everything. She's great. And she, uh, Foster, of course, loves her. Her point to take away, and how this is universal and goes to what you were saying, is to take away the importance on non-importance things. Mm -hmm. That past dogs, that's something anyone with anxiety should try to relate to. Yeah. That if you love one side of things but dread the other, maybe take a look at the plus or minus of what you're getting out of that situation. And again, take away the importance of non-importance things As you said, is he safe, fed, walked, warm, socialized, and has stuff to do? Mm Yes, 100%. And that's better than being running around on the streets, not be able to say his name because he was a dog on the 4th of July. Is he still a bit goosey sometimes? So be it. Because, Pete, I'm fed and safe and walked and warm and socialized and have stuff to do. And I'm on a podcast about anxiety. (laughs) It's okay, because <laughs> overall, I'm doing fine. Yeah. That's why we're able to laugh about this stuff, because it's not a, we try to learn about things, but it's not a serious mental health. If anyone is listening to this for serious, serious mental health issues, please, please go back to the <laughs> iTunes, <laughs> Apple Podcast Store. You're making a horrible mistake. <laughs> try not to let the small stuff take over your life. Think about the important stuff as much as you possibly can. And I know that that's such a, easy band-aid to put over things, but it does put things into perspective. That I have a bundle of wagging joy looking at me and looking to me for guidance and love every day and the dumb part of me wants to tear a part of it down and try to poke at it to find anxiety. And I'm able to make the decision as much as I can to let some of that go and just enjoy the good parts, because that's the important stuff.
1: Until the murder eyes. Yeah, until the murder eyes. (laughs) Until
0: he forces me to pee in my own face. (laughs)
1: Stick around for a glimpse into next week's show. But first... Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Oh, I love Audible. Mm. Get a free
0: audio book download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com sent scent of a podcast. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3. player.
1: Tommy, I've got the book this week, and I know when I say it, it's going to be something that you're going to think is a real downer, but I encourage you to just stay with me. Uh, because Ooh. this is one of those power books and I bring it up because I, it, in the process there are needles involved so this is part of my own ah. actualization uh, the book okay. is Being Mortal Medicine and What Matters in the End by Atul Gawande now Atul Gawande okay. is a practicing surgeon and this book is his sort of love letter to the profession uh, where he argues that quality of life is, is a desired goal for everyone, patients and families, and we need to rethink the whole system. And when we say we're going to rethink the whole system of life, we have to approach the end of life differently. And I adore his approach to this. It's uh, it, it, it's a mature book. Uh, it's, it's a book for people who are ready to think deeply about uh, compelling issues that will, guaranteed, impact every single one of us. Mm. Atul Gawan. Is there a
0: pop up version? <laughs> For you, the listeners of What's That Smell? Audible is offering, again, a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial that's 30 days to try this super fun book
1: that Pete's talking about. <laughs> in a row, though. You could listen in a row. It's not like every third day. It's 30 straight days of end of life. Oh, right? That Sometimes makes more sense. when you have to ask, is it, all th- is it open 24 hours? In a row, right. you have to know. I want to be sure. That's part of the deal. All 30 days. Good point. You can't break it up.
0: Visit www www.audibletrial.com slash scent of a podcast and today's tune is Doodah by Grand Torino
1: we don't pay to advertise this show, so we appreciate you sharing it with others you think would be interested. And how you share it, I, we don't care. Email, talk to them on the street, yell it from the windows. Share it on Facebook. Sure. You could really use it, share it on Facebook. That's a great way to do it. And since we're a new show, those five-star reviews in iTunes and Apple Podcasts really help others to discover what we're doing here. So if you like what you've heard, if you think that we've uh, uh, that we've said something or talked about a subject that, is, that has touched you in some way, share the love with a review and a comment and pass the show on to a friend. It really helps you guys, and we really appreciate it. Okay, now, coming
0: up next week...
1: Deep breathing is for suckers.
0: (laughs) We're taking on breathing now? (laughs) (laughs) It's like having food on your face. And no one tells you, but for years, Pete. Yeah, like decades. You have pizza, and then ten years later they go, by the way, you have pizza on your head. (laughs) What are you doing with your life? (laughs) Rethink things
1: it's actually being studied by smart people oh smart people and they're canadians ah, smart I, canadians you know what? <laughs> until then i'm Tommy McStephen i'm Pete Wright thank you for downloading we'll be back next week on what's that smell